you got your Bibles, we're in our series. I'm going to read in two different spots this morning. I'm going to read in Titus chapter 1, and then that's our main text, but I'm going to start off actually in 1 Timothy. Our topic this morning is on elders. So we're going to talk about what does it look like, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, I'm going to read that, and then we're going to go to Titus chapter 1 as well, and verse 5, and the rest of the text. But what does it look like to have family shepherds over us? As we're in our series called The Glorious Bride, opportunity us to see the blessing of the local church and what it is to us. This morning's topic is family shepherds. Listen to God's word. Paul writes this first, 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting verses 1 through 8. He says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires, uh, he desires a noble task. Therefore, in light of this being a noble task, this, he, there, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a, a recent uh, convert, or he, he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Verse 7, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. And then you flip over two books to Titus, right after 2 Timothy is Titus. Titus chapter 1, verse 5, this is Paul once again talking he writes this, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I had directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and are not open to the charge of the debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable. He must be a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insorbent, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, uh, Cretans uh, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy glutens. Yes, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in faith, not voted devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of the people who turn away from truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled all, and, and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Well, in one of the most fascinating videos that I've seen in a very long time, a man by the name of Destin Sandlin shows that some things can be so ingrained into our brains that it's almost impossible to rewire them. What did they ask this aerospace engineer to do? 
they asked him to ride a backwards bike. Sounds so simple, right? He had to ride a backwards bike, which meant that as he turned the steering wheel left, the wheel would go right, and if he turned the steering wheel right, the wheels would go left. You'd think he would be able to do this, but surprisingly enough, it was impossible. In fact, so impossible that Destin goes across the nation and he gets up on stage and he, and he begins to ask people, saying, I'm going to give you 200 bucks if you can ride this backwards bike simply across the stage, and he has yet to give a dollar bill out. And you ask, what in the world is going on? How can somebody not understand such an easy concept? Right? The concept is easy. You're riding a backwards bike. You just kind of reverse in your mind how to be able to ride it. So if you want to again go left, you turn the steering wheel right. And if you want to go left, you turn the steering wheel right. Very simple concept, incredibly difficult to put into practice. And what Destin shows us is that sometimes our, what gets so hardwired into our minds that it's almost impossible to unwire it, and that is how to ride a bike in the first place. Riding a normal bike has been so hardwired into his mind that when he tries to reverse this fact, it's almost impossible for him to do so. In fact, it took him over eight months doing this on a daily basis to figure out how to ride this backwards bike. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I could do it in way less than eight months. But what's so interesting is, is this is incredibly difficult. Easy concept. But because of the old self so ingrained into our minds, to rewire our thinking becomes almost impossible. I find that a fitting illustration to many things within the Christian life. Because there's many things that are so simple in this Christian life. Loving your neighbor as yourself. Incredibly simple concept to be able to, to apply, to understand, but yet to live this out. That's the, the hardship. In fact, as we walk through this series on the glorious bride, the local church. I think all of us would say this is an easy concept for us to, to understand. I think many of us, if we look throughout the scriptures and, and begin to read them for ourselves, I think that we would all see that we were made for community, that we were made to live in community within the local body, and this is what God has called us to do, to be able to invest in his bride, the local church, easy concept for us to learn, incredibly difficult to make a priority in our lives. You ask the question, what's going on there? Well, may I suggest to you that our old self, the culture we live in, has been so ingrained into our minds to rewire it almost becomes impossible without the Holy Spirit's help. You and I live in a culture where radical individualism reigns true, they say that you need to be your own person, have nobody over you, live on your own life, don't let anybody speak into your life, and therefore, to be able to, to now see an easy concept that we see true in the Scriptures, to be able to rewire our brains to live this out becomes incredibly difficult. Again, this is why we need the Holy Spirit. 
And this applies to so many different areas of our life. I really do believe that we don't need new knowledge for many of us in the church. We just have to already put into practice what we already know to be true, right, and biblical. This actually takes place in the topic we pick up this morning as well. This morning, we do want to pick up the topic of family shepherds. We want to talk about elders and what does that look like, this gift given to us in the local body. But for many of us, easy concept to see in the scriptures, incredibly difficult to live out. How many of us like to be shepherded in the first place? Probably not many of us. And even this word elder, I think for many of us, brings a bad taste in our mouth. And it might surprise you that me being a pastor, this word elder actually leaves a bad taste in my mouth as well. Because I've been in churches where I've seen elders abuse different individuals. I've seen the abuse and the destruction that they can cause. And even this term in my own life creates a little PTSD. And I think for many of us, that is true of your life as well. In fact, I did a message about a year ago, which I, it, it, I encourage you to go re-listen to. The message was talking about the baggage we bring to the table on this specific topic of elders. And it was found in our first Peter series, first Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. And, and, I, and it was a great message talking about the baggage and how do we get over that baggage. And I re-encourage you to, 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 or to listen to that again. But this morning, I don't necessarily want to talk about the baggage as I want to talk about this idea of elders actually being a gift to the local body. I believe if we see the biblical call upon their lives and what they're called to actually do within the body of Christ, I do think that we'll actually see them as the gift that they should be to the body. And this is where it's so helpful as well to go back to this analogy of the backwards bike. Because the backwards bike analogy doesn't just apply to us being shepherded by elders, but it applies to the elders themselves. Because many times they can look at the scriptures and see their role, but because they so ingrained in their mind this Western culture of doing business and making now the church a business that many times they go back to that time of thinking rather than doing their jobs of like the Scripture calls them to do. But this is where Titus becomes so helpful. Because Titus is going to lay out for us very easy truths this morning to show us their role. And again, as we see their role, I think it's going to help us in our understanding of what elders are called to do and be in the first place. In fact, what's so shocking about our own passage is that when we open up our passage, it is surprising in many ways. Why is it surprising? Because notice the requirements we read. They're not the requirements we would think would be of elders. We would think that Paul would bring up experience. Shouldn't experience matter? Or should we talk about leadership skills? What's so interesting is that Paul doesn't talk about any of that. What's so remarkable about this passage is how simple these requirements actually are. 
In fact, if you're looking and reading the requirements of being an elder, they're not at all that remarkable. They're ordinary requirements. Don't get me wrong, the lists are long. We just read them in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and it's a long list of requirements. And even here in Titus, a long list of requirements. But what's so interesting about them is the simplistic nature of them. If you're looking throughout them, isn't it interesting that everything Paul asks of the elders is actually a command to every other believer? Just look at verse 7 with me again and look at the example. Paul begins by saying in verse 7 that first an elder is not supposed to be arrogant. Well, are any of us supposed to be arrogant? Any of us supposed to, to, to live a life full of pride and being boastful? No. And then you just keep reading the requirements in this passage. Verse 7 again, elders should not be quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy, or, uh, greedy for gain. But if, should any of us be greedy for gain? Or walk around drunk all the time? Or violent? Is it like Paul is telling the elders, you shouldn't be violent, but then telling us that it's okay to punch somebody in the face? No, not at all. These requirements are the same. In fact, there's only one that stands out to us that's really different than what Paul would tell any one of the believers. In fact, the only requirement that actually is given to an elder or a church that is not also required of any other believer is that of teaching, and, and maybe you can look at the recent, uh, being a recent convert. But, but other than that, every other requirement in this passage will find another New Testament command given to each and every single one of us. And is that not surprising to us? However, it's not surprising if we understand what an elder is actually called to do. See, we, we, we have to be able to rid ourselves of the Western idea of running a church like a business. Because when we are able to do that, we're able to see here, what is the purpose of an elder? They're called to shepherd the congregation and point them to the beauty of Christ. They're called to shepherd the congregation and point them to the beauty of Christ by preaching the regular preaching of God's Word, by prayer, and by living a life of example. That's their job. Very simple job. And in that understanding, it transforms how we view the elders who are called to shepherd over us. See, I think we have to remind ourselves that the world's standard and goals are different than the bride of Christ's goals and standards and purpose, which is probably the reason we don't look at this list given to us and see that five years of business experience as a CEO of a Fortune 500 business as a prerequisite to be an elder. It's not found in this book. So why do so many churches make that a prerequisite as they look for their elders, looking for those who are CEOs and leaders of businesses? When the church of Christ has such a different purpose. The goal of an elder, again, is singular in its purpose. It's to point the church to the bride, Christ, or to point the church to Christ, and to get them to, to have their affection stirred towards seeing who Jesus is, to fall in love with Jesus, and then live a life of obedience to Christ. That's an elder's job. Very, very simple. 
So it shouldn't shock us to see this list of requirements. Because if their job is to shepherd the church towards Christ, should it not surprise us to see the moral requirements of their life? Is to live a life obedient towards Christ? Because how can they shepherd anybody to Christ if they're not living a life that's pursuing Christ first? So it shouldn't surprise us again to see that what Paul is asking of his people, what Paul is literally looking for is Christian maturity from his elders. He's looking for spirit-dependent individuals who are pursuing a life of obedience so they can then shepherd the flock towards that end as well. Again, they can never take anybody in which they're not willing to go themselves. So it shouldn't surprise us to see the moral requirements to be the exact same as the body of Christ because their job is simply to shepherd the church towards that end and that purpose. In fact, that's why I like this word pastor so much. Because if we look at the scriptures, we see, we, we see the overseer and we see elder and we see pastor being used interchangeably. But this word pastor is a good word. The word pastor in the English comes from the Latin, which simply means shepherd. So when we look at this word, what we should we think of? We should think of, of a shepherd. And these are not any old shepherds, these elders and these pastors, but they're under shepherds. Meaning that there's another head shepherd, then they're not that head shepherd. Jesus is the head shepherd. But they're under shepherds, under his care, and their call is to be able to listen to the main shepherd's voice as they've been entrusted with a flock, and they're called to now shepherd and point them to Jesus, to love them towards Jesus, to handle them with gentleness and care and kindness, not domineering over them. In fact, my undergrad is in animal science. I like animals. I was going to be a vet, so let me share with you a little difference between sheep and cattle. Sheep is what, they, they have something, they have a larger kind of fright zone. This larger fright zone means that when you push them, you don't need to be that close to them for them to move off of you. Cattle, you have to have your horse pretty close to them for them to actually move for you. Kind of yell and loud and shout and they don't really listen, but, but sheep are the exact opposite. They have a large fright zone, meaning you can be 10 to 20 to 30 feet away from them, simply move close and they begin to move off of you. In fact, they're such frightful animals that that the best way to lead them is actually to get out in front of them. Not so with cattle. Cattle, you got to get behind them and push them. Sheep, they move for you better when you're ahead of them. Which means you can't be domineering over them because they're frightful animals and they'll scatter. I believe this is the same language that, 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 that Peter comes up with when he calls us in the passage of 1 Peter chapter 5 to say when he tells the elders, he says, elders, I need you to lead in this fashion. Don't be domineering over those in your charge, but catch it, being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. But did you catch what he says? He turns to the elders and he says, picture your congregation like a flock of sheep. Don't be domineering over them. But what is the best way to lead them? Catch it by being examples, being examples, being examples to the flock. See what Paul, or Peter is saying in that passage to us? The same thing Paul is hinting at in our passage? 
seen the best way for, for elders and pastors to shepherd the flock of Jesus Christ is by living examples for the congregation. So what you're looking for in your elders are people who are stepping out in faith themselves, showing you what does it look like to live spirit-dependent lives. It's, it's elders who are being obedient to Christ's call on their life, no matter how difficult that call might be, so that you can look at them as an example and see the joy they have in following Jesus and follow suits. So again, it shouldn't surprise us to look at this passage and see the prerequisite of an elder is actually all character-based. It's Christ-likeness. He's saying, I need your elders to be people who are Christ-like so that you can look at them and follow their example. See? And yet so often, is this how we view elders and pastors? Do we look at them as the example of how we're called to live the Christian life? In fact, I think oftentimes as we look at elders, we think of the exact opposite, and this is how many churches treat their elders. They treat them and they give them tasks to do all sorts of things. But how often do we say to them, hey, you're called to live a life of obedience, stepping out in faith so that other people can see that and see the joy that comes from it. In fact, most of our elders are so concerned with other things. They think their job is to decide the color of the carpet in the, the sanctuary. Or they decide their job is to fire and hire staff. Or they think their job is to, to be the ones who decide the color on the church stationery. They're doing everything else but shepherding by living an example to the flock of Jesus Christ. Paul and Peter says this first, the way you're going to shepherd your congregation is first by living by example. The second thing he says in our passage, back in Titus with me, Titus chapter 1 verse 9, notice what he says, his second task, how they're called to shepherd, not only by example, but he says this, he must hold firm, the elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine. So, so notice what Paul is pointing us to in this passage. He's saying, elders, I, I need you to hold fast to the trustworthy word as taught. Taught by who? Taught by the apostles. So what he's really saying is, elders, I need you to be the ones who hold fast to the gospel message. That you shepherd by protecting this gospel message. That you're the ones who, who constantly remind the church to be gospel-centered. To hold fast to this message and as we're going to look at elders, they're going to do this in two main ways. They're going to do this in an offensive way, and they're going to do this in a defensive way to hold fast to the gospel message as taught. First, we talk of the offensive way. Notice what he says in our passage. Why are they called to hold fast or hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught? Catch it. So that they may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Why do they hold fast to the gospel message? So that they can give, give sound instruction to the congregation. Which means that one of the main roles of an elder and a shepherd or a pastor or an overseer or a bishop or whatever you call them is the teaching ministry of the church. In fact, again, if you go back to 1 Timothy chapter 3 in Titus and you look at the requirements, what's the one thing requirement that stands out above the rest that's not given to to just the, to the rest of the believers. It's teaching. The ability to teach. That should stand out to us. 
In fact, as you're walking your way for 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, it's all about elders. This is the one task that's different for a deacon or a deaconess. We're picking up that topic next week. What does it look like to be a deacon, a deaconess? But here's the one thing that should stand out to us is this ability to teach that's given to the elders. Paul says, I need the elders to be able to teach. Why should they be able to teach? Paul gives us the answer again in verse 9, so that they may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. So they're not only called to shepherd by example, but they're called to shepherd shepherd the congregation by the preaching of God's Word. Which means that what you want from your elders is a love for this book, for them to cherish this book, love it so much so that they're able to teach it in a sound way to the congregation. So he's saying the teaching ministry of the church becomes vastly important. Why? Because when you find yourself outside of that, that's when you find yourself in trouble. In fact, what we need to understand about Christianity is Christianity really is a message that not only needs to be proclaimed, but it needs to be believed. In other words, as you're proclaiming this message, it has to be right so that the people are believing the right things. As Walter uh, Henriksen says so wonderfully, he says, disciples are made, they're not born. Disciples are made, they're not born, which means how do you move a non-believer to become a believer? Is it not through the proclamation of God's word or the preaching of God's word? How, how do you move a, a new believer into maturity? Is it not also from the preaching of God's word? Romans chapter 10, Paul seems to hint to that reality as he says this, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but catch it, how then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And, and how are they to hear without somebody preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent out? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. You see what Paul says there? He says, Christian doctrine, it matters. It matters what you believe. So he's saying you need to find elders who are preaching to you the right things to you so you can believe in the right things and have salvation. He's saying find elders who, who love this book and cherish this book and are able to teach it correctly so that you can believe the right things about God. And as you believe the right things about God, you can walk in obedience to Him. In fact, what's so fascinating to me is I look at Paul's life. He gathers the the elders of Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, and he uses graphic language towards them. He gathers the elders and he says, I am innocent of all of your blood. How could he say these words? Because he, next he says, that I never refrain from preaching to you the whole counsel of God's word. See what Paul is saying in that moment? He's saying his mission as an apostle and an elder and a pastor was very simple. It was to convince the church that this book is true and then to convince the church to follow suit in obedience. And if he can preach this gospel and do so for the whole council, he says, man, I am innocent. I have done my purpose. 
I've done what I've called to do. And notice where his authority is coming from as an apostle and an elder. It's coming from this book. This is all, all the authority he needed. It only came from this book. And the same true as elders of the local body as well. Where does our authority come from? It simply comes from this book. That's the only authority I have over you is to persuade you to believe this book and to love this book and to live a life obedient to this book. To convince you it's true and right and beautiful and good. And to convince you that God loved you so much to send his son that who would ever believe in that son would come to saving faith. Do you see what an elder's elder's job is to do? Not only to shepherd the flock by loving and caring over them and leaving a life of example, but secondly, to shepherd them by the teaching of God's word in this offensive way. But next, what has he said? He also says the defensive approach to shepherding as well. Notice what he says in verses 9 through 10 back in Titus chapter 1. He says he must hold firm, the elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, catch it, and also rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, and they must be silenced. Since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. In other words, what Paul is saying, I need you to place elders over the churches, Titus, not only to, to preach good word, but to correct those who step out of fashion with true doctrine. He says, I need you to shepherd not only in the offensive approach, but I need you to protect your congregation from false doctrine. And this protection nature of, 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 of the elders is vastly important. Because what I have seen time and time again is individuals who are not under the elders' shepherding, who find themselves outside of the local church, they're incredibly prone to walking away from the gospel message. They're incredibly prone to being influenced by false doctrine. Why is that the case? Because first of all, they're not sitting under the regular preaching of true doctrine, and secondly, they don't have elders to remind them when they fall out of line of that doctrine. They don't have elders watching over the flock and protecting them. Isn't, isn't it interesting that Paul is turning to Titus in this moment and he's practicing exactly what Titus was called to do? Paul says, hey, he calls out everybody in, in a short little couple of verses. Circumcision party says, you're, 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 they're teaching you false doctrine. He calls out the, even the Cretans in Crete. He says, they, hey, wake them up to the truth. They're not being truthful. He calls those who are following Jewish myths to also fall back in line with true gospel. Why does Paul call out all these people? Why is he shepherding by protection? Because he understands the eternity of the congregation is at stake. He understands that, that souls are in his hands and he wants to take care of those souls. And this is what makes a pastor and elder's position so weighty. In fact, I'm reminded of the words in Hebrews chapter 13. The writer of Hebrews writes this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls 
as those who will have to give an account. And I know a lot of us focus on the first half of the bo- obeying the leaders, but catch the second half. Why are you called to obey in the first place? Why? Because they're keeping watch over your souls. They're keeping watch over your souls, and they will have to give an account. And again, the authority we have when he's calling you to obey us is simply to obey this book. That's what he's calling for. If I don't don't have a verse and a passage to back out what I'm calling you to do, then don't listen to me. He's saying, hey, obey your leaders because they're keeping watch over your soul. And I think what he's getting to is this idea the head shepherd has turned to his under-shepherds and has given them a congregation to care for. And he wants them to shepherd this, this flock that is under their care by loving them, pointing them to Jesus, to stirring their affections upon the beauty of who Christ is, doing so by living a life of example, shepherding by the preaching of God's word, and then also protecting them from false doctrine. Because he says you're You have to give account for their souls. And Paul says, hey, I'm blameless if I'm able to do those three things. And I think when we look at it in that fashion, I think it does change how we look at the elders of the body. My goal, Ben's goal, future elders' goal is simply to point you to the beauty of who Christ is to love you through the hardships of life, to celebrate with you in the joys of life. But most importantly, show you what it looks like to follow Jesus Christ. We want you to fall in love with him. Our goal is to point you to the beauty of who Christ is. And this morning we have the opportunity to do that through the ordinance of communion. We get to partake as a family in the communion table to remind ourselves that God would look down on earth. He says, what is man that, that he should even be mindful of us? But he sent his son to come to this earth to live a life that was sinless, so that he could give us his righteousness. Remember the story of the prodigal son? The son who is wayward, living a life of sin. The father is waiting to embrace the son, and when he sees the son, he he takes off his robe and he runs. He braces his son and he puts his coat, he puts the ring upon his son saying, Your status is now as my son. I know you ran off, and I know you want to be this hired servant, but I'm pouring out my grace upon you. I'm going to treat you like a son. That's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that when we turn to Jesus, he takes the sin, the consequence of the sin upon himself, and clothes us with his righteousness so that we could have a hope and a purpose, and the eternity with Him. It's baffling, but we get to celebrate that. On the night He was betrayed, Jesus, He took the bread and He broke it. 
He said, this is my body broken for you. Whenever you partake in this, do this in remembrance of me. And he took the cup. He said, this is a sign of the new covenant. No longer having to work your way, wondering, hey, did I, did I love enough people today? Did I knock on enough doors to be able to satisfy my righteousness? No, Jesus says the new covenant is not like that. He says, I satisfied for you everything on your behalf. You don't have to go down this tireless way of saying, man, did I do enough today? Did I, did I, did, 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 did I, was I obedient enough to, to gain his affirmation? No, the new covenant says it's all by his grace that he would look at you as a child and say, yes, you are my son. I'm well pleased with you. He took that, that cup, signed in the new covenant, his blood poured out on your behalf, and he says, when you drink of this cup, the sweetness of the grapevine to remind us of the sweetness of the gospel message, do this in remembrance of me. We get to do that as a family. To remind ourselves of the glorious bride that we are a family together as we partake at the same table. Got one table. We're all family serving our Father in heaven. And we get to respond in worship. To respond in gratitude for what Christ has done on our behalf. Saying yes, we're thankful. Saying yes, we're going to remember what you did and we're going to go live lives that shine out in the workplace and in our homes and for our neighbors so that they would see the beauty of who Jesus is as well. Let's pray as Ben comes back up here and we'll partake in communion. God, I am thankful. I'm thankful for the blessing of being able to live a life that you've called me to live, to shepherd the local church. I'm thankful for each and every person in this room thankful for what they mean to, to the body of Faithful Bible Church, thankful for what they mean to you, dearly loved. God, I'm thankful for your son that you sent as a sacrifice for us, a gift. God, I'm thankful and overwhelmed that you would love us so much to guarantee a future of hope, to guarantee an eternity with you forever. God, let our church rejoice in that reality this morning. Let us rejoice in all the churches that are gathered across the globe this morning singing praises to the King who is so worthy to receive them. God, be with this church. Strengthen this church. Allow us to be a great witness in Moore County, not for our own good, but for your glory alone. Would you reign supreme in our lives, reign supreme this morning? We pray these things in your precious name. Amen.